I got my fork. You pick up your fork and we'll do it together. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Hello. It is so good to be back with you on the Seasoned RD We took an unexpected break, but we are back in full force, and pretty soon we'll be starting our medical series, so please stay tuned for that. But we had the honor of talking with Dr. Jillian Lampert. She is a registered dietitian, PhD, LD, Master's of Public Health, Fellow of the Academy of Eating Disorders. Her bio is in the show notes. And she shares her story of being in the medical school, but then was drawn to nutrition. And we are glad she shifted, I am for sure, to become an RD and PhD. She's that force that we need in the eating disorders world. You know, as you listen in, you're just going to get this warm feeling. The theme of her work is joining and helping, doing things together bite for bite. And she has created for her clients and patients what she wishes she would have had many years before. She is passionate about communication, wellness in schools, and policy. So please listen in, and I hope you enjoy our time with Dr. Jillian Coral Lampert. Welcome, Dr. Jillian Lampert. Wow, we are excited to have you. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Yes. Hello. So excited to learn from you. As I was just doing some research, I'm like, wow. She wears so many hats. It seems like you've got your hands in lots of different things, and we're super excited to learn about them. But just to ease our way into that, mountains or beach? Mountains. Okay. I like mountains with a view of the beach. Oh, (laughs) a little bit of both worlds. Yep. (laughs) And then breakfast or dinner? Oh, uh, that's a tough one. I think I'd go breakfast. Do you have a meal of choice, a breakfast meal of choice? I do. I have this, I travel a lot. And so I have a little routine. I'm a fan of Airbnbs. So my favorite breakfast is like a vanilla buttermilk waffle with frozen blueberries and scrambled eggs with red and green and yellow and orange peppers with a little bit of ham. That is my go-to breakfast. So every time I get into my Airbnb. I go to the grocery store, get my little cart full of stuff and away I go. So it is my my favorite. That sounds delicious, satisfying and beautiful. Yeah. And easy to find at pretty much any grocery store, Target, you name it, you can find it. You can find it. Not anything special. Awesome. Well, last question, audio book or paper book? Oh, I would love to say paper. I love paper. I love to touch paper. I love to have books. And most of the reading I do is on audiobook because 
I also have a really hard time sitting still. And so sitting still and reading a paper book, well, I aspire to do more of that. My 17-year-old is an avid reader and I watch them and think, I I want to do that. And I just can't. So audiobooks <laughs> are my friend. Yeah, same. Okay, well, I'm going to bring you back. You're a dietitian. So I'm going to bring you back to the RD test, the the exam. Do you remember anything about that day? Was it number two pencil or keyboard? It was definitely number two pencil. And it was months after, you know, months after finishing, right? I just, you know, finished my internship, had to wait for months. So it was back in the old days when it was offered. You took it when they said it was going to be offered. And so there I was taking it with my number two pencil. And I remember it being one of those incredibly long blocks of time and thinking, will it really take me that long? Um, <laughs> I hope well, not, right? <laughs> I hope not. I had the good fortune to uh, to go with a friend who was also in my internship. We both had a similar experience. Now we agreed that we would wait for each other outside the room, regardless of how long it took. And we were probably within about six minutes of each other taking the exam. And it didn't take that long. And I was pretty grateful that we had done a little bit of preparation, given, given the lack of you know, the, the amount of time between finishing everything and taking the exam. So I remember it with lots of dread and then lots of excitement. Okay, a little bit of both. Yeah. And the preparation is key, right? But then also doing it with friends, somebody Absolutely. who's going through it with you. Yeah. And that's a big part of what this podcast is about is like remembering the anxieties of just passing the board exams and things like that, but also being together and learning this work together and and learning from each other. So we're going to learn from you today. And I wonder how you got into the field of, of nutrition and eating disorders, both. Yeah, it's sort of a, it's, it's a little bit of a long story, but I'll, I'll try to make it a, not quite as long. I was going to be a, a physician. I was going to be a doctor. When I was uh, six, I got one of those cute little medical carts that you got as kids that had like the toy otoscope that probably is way too sharp now and never be <laughs> Yeah, it would never pass. I don't know how I didn't puncture somebody's eardrum with that little, <laughs> little guy, but I was going to be a doctor and that was, that was it. And my parents were excited about that and, and that was what I was going to do. I got a, a biology degree in college, or I got admitted to a biology program. I got a scholarship for a biology degree. So I was on my way. And in my sophomore year, I took, during J-term, my college had one of those January term things. So I took a J-term class in aerobics instructor training. And it was, uh, I went to college in the early 90s when aerobics were all the rage and everybody you know, could get a part-time job as an aerobics instructor if you had any training. So I took this class and I found the nutrition part fascinating. We did this long part of nutrition during the month-long course, and I was really just sort of swept away by the, the biochemistry of it and the, the eating habit part of it and the food culture part of it just was really sort of pretty scintillating to me. And so I called my parents sometime in January that year and I said, um, I don't think I want to be a doctor anymore. And they said, why not? And I said, well, I think I want to go into nutrition. And my parents said, well, honey, that's probably because you have an eating disorder. Oh, and interesting. Probably you're just really hung up on the nutrition part. And I said, no, 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 I, I get it. Yeah, I do. Right. I, I did have an eating disorder and I was I uh, probably a mid eating disorder at that point and was quite ill and uh, 
by grace and luck and uh, not good treatment, I got better. Uh, and I'm really grateful for that. Uh, but I really said, no, 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 this is like, I knew it was just different. I knew that there was, that this was a, a love I had. And I, in my, my colleagues at school, the other students in my, in my major, I just didn't see myself working with most of them. And I would look around thinking all these people who wanted to be doctors I just didn't feel it. And, and it was as simple as that. Like, I just really didn't feel it. There were a couple of students in my, my major that I really didn't like very much. I just didn't like their, their ethics or their, their approach. And I just thought, Oh, I can't, I just started to feel trapped. Like I can't spend the rest of my life working with all of you. That's, these are, you're not my people. Uh-huh. And so I, I convinced my parents like, no, 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 I really want to do this nutrition thing. And they said, yes, well, you have a scholarship for a biology degree. So you're not going to go change your major. And I was like, okay. And now, now of course, as a parent of a 17 year old who will be starting college in the fall, I really understand how they were feeling. (laughs) Uh, So I said, okay, okay. I think I can figure this out because I'm really resourceful if nothing else. So I figured out how I could take a bunch of nutrition classes at another university nearby, actually two other universities. So I put in some summer classes and I took a bunch of nutrition classes and I thought, yep, this is what I want to do. Finished that biology degree, had essentially a nutrition minor, except my university didn't offer that. So I just crafted it and then did what many people do when they're not quite sure what to do next. I went to grad school (laughs) because that seemed like a good plan. And so I applied for graduate school in nutrition and I went from Minnesota, where I did my undergrad, to Vermont, to the University of Vermont to a a master's of science program in nutrition and loved that, worked with an amazing, amazing advisor and really felt like, yeah, this is it. And my parents, meanwhile, are still like, I don't even know what this nutrition thing is. What is, what does that mean? What do you do with that? Is that a job? And so I kept saying like, just wait, just hang on, wait for it. It's going to be okay. Uh, You know, I had a, had a research assistantship for grad school. So it was relatively okay. And, and about halfway through my, my first year, somebody said, well, where are you going to apply for an internship? And I said, an intern, what? And they said, well, you, you're going to, you're going to be a dietitian, right? And I said, yeah, I think so. And they said, well, you need to do an internship. And I'm like, what's that? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I totally remember I was an internship director for a little while and, and people would say, nobody told me this. Yeah. I just didn't. And particularly, I think as a, as a grad student and as a bio major, I just wasn't on the sort of path, the, mm-hmm. the undergraduate nutrition path. And, and I, I teach now at the University of Minnesota and I see students on that path. And I'm like, oh, you know how you're going to get there. That's great. It's <laughs> a good I'm path. so glad somebody's helping you. So I, I you know, dug into what I needed to do. And I, I applied for internships, both at uh, the internship at the University of Vermont and then the one at the University of Minnesota. And at this point, I was I was well. I was into recovery. I was I was feeling good. I was doing really well. Uh, really reformulating my whole relationship with myself and food and weight and all of that jazz. And I uh, got accepted to the University of Minnesota internship and thought, okay, well, I'm going to go back home. So I went back to Minnesota. I started this internship, which was 51 weeks, the longest internship in the country. <laughs> oh point. my gosh. It was incredible. And we, back in the day, you know, a million years ago when I was an intern in the early nineties, we actually, as interns were paid a little bit. So we, I think we were paid like 
$300 a year. So we were just rolling. <laughs> a little stipend <laughs> for you. <laughs> really great. Uh, but I, we soon discovered other interns paid for their internships. So we yes. were pretty lucky. But I had an incredible internship. I, at the University of Minnesota Hospitals and Clinics, I saw, I saw illnesses and disease states that I have not seen since, but I have read about. I saw things that you know shouldn't happen, but do. I saw a, an amazing, got an amazing dietetic education. And there at the time was an eating disorder program at the University of Minnesota, one of the few in the country at that point. And at that point, there are probably five, eight eating disorder programs in the whole country. Yeah. And so I had this really I had a long rotation in eating disorders and in, in the psych units, my fellow interns were so afraid of it. They were like, I don't want to go up there. That's really scary. Doors are locked. And there's, you know, I don't know. And those eating disorder people, I don't know about them. And I had this, this tension at the time, because at that time in the, um, in the dark ages, you didn't talk about having had an eating disorder if you'd had one and were a professional and nobody told me that, but I knew it. I just knew that it was true and I didn't quite know why. And it never made sense to me because why, why wouldn't I talk about it? Not that because I had an eating disorder, I knew all that much more than somebody who didn't. But I, if I had had diabetes, I probably don't think, I don't think somebody would have said if I had become an endocrinologist, don't ever talk about that. Or I would have thought like I shouldn't share that. So it was very strange, but I knew. And so I didn't say anything, but when I walked into the unit and all my other interns were sort of, you know, my friends were nervous. I walked into the unit and I was like, oh, these are my people. I mean, you're, you're crying at lunch and, and you're over there, like not knowing how you feel. And, and I, this is, this is comfortable, which I recognized at the time was a little odd, but, <laughs> and I loved it. And so I was, I was sort of hooked. I did a lot of staff relief. I, and then when I started my first job, right after that, my first boss at a small community hospital, about 110 bed hospital in central Vermont, it moved back, said, what do you know about eating disorders? And I was like, what, what do you mean? What do I know about eating disorders? Because my first thought was, did somebody find out that I am in recovery? Like I'm recovered. Did she find out? And she said, well, the community did this needs assessment and we need to create an eating disorder program. And none of us know how to do that. And don't you have experience? And I was like, yeah, I got like 10 weeks of training <laughs> ready. Yeah. So he said, great, go upstairs to the, uh, the mental health unit. And there are a couple told me who to talk to. There are a couple of people up there really excited to do this thing. And you guys are going to start an eating disorder program. Wow. Like, okay. So we did. Okay. So we started a program that probably today we would call an IOP okay. and I worked to worked in the field ever since that first program. Yeah, that is crazy. And so now you, so you, you still became a doctor, just not a medical doctor. Right. And I love how you said, nobody told me that when I'm calling it the lived experience or someone with history. And when you said, nobody told me that, and then, but I knew it, it's that felt sense of like the elephant in the room. And now we can talk about it. And that's a really great, because there's, there's groups within the Academy for Eating Disorders. That's the SIG. The special interest group. So it's yeah. the professionals in recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you were part of the start of that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And then there's a nutrition SIG there too. Yep. And probably many, many others. So we're not here to talk about AED, but you're very involved in that and they're super program. So you got into the field kind of around about 
you you've you've taught us all so many things and i don't know what your where your passions lie today i know when you came to kansas city it was about fecal implant bi- microbiome <laughs> but what what are your interests right now oh varied and many and i'm still fascinated by the the gi the sort of whole gut microbiome i really think that will continue to be a, a very interesting piece as we move forward in the field, because, you know, we as, as dietitians working with people with eating disorders have known for a long time that the food is really important. And, and we, we know that, and sometimes it, it becomes sort of secondary to the, to the whole treatment experience, but food is, food is medicine. Food is so important. So I, I really think that'll be an exciting development and continue to move forward in the field. And we're doing some work uh, in the, the treatment programs that I'm associated with looking at that and how we can really maximize people's ability to refeed, to reestablish that relationship with their body and, and with eating. So I'm still passionate about that. I have, uh, I kind of have sort of three major areas that I, I spend my time doing between my day job and my, my hobbies, which look a lot like jobs, but I, I think a lot about policy. I've been involved with the Eating Disorders Coalition for a long time and the last 10 years with Red Sea, which is the uh, consortium that represents eating disorder care providers, the higher level of care providers. And so we think a lot about access to care, both on the EDC and the Red Sea side. So I spend a lot of time on issues related to access, to insurance, to regulations, to really some minute (laughs) rules and regulations within like the Department of Labor and, and other policy areas that often make people's eyes glaze over, but are really important in, in really changing access. So I, I'm really passionate about getting more care to more people because they're, they're, you know, as we all know, there's not enough care for people with eating disorders. And the, the last two years has really brought a little bit of a shift in awareness for eating disorders, you know, through the pandemic, there's been, you know, you see it all the time. There are articles everywhere about eating disorders and there's more awareness and there's finally more awareness of mental health Mm -hmm. and this sort of, I think a collective understanding as a society that hard things are hard and we need to work together and we need connection. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that piece of it because that really helps from a policy perspective. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot about policy. I think a lot about uh, communication and how do we how do we continue to talk about eating disorders and help people to understand eating disorders, even if it's just to the point where they can recognize somebody might be struggling with something and get them to somebody who can help. And so we think a lot about communication and a ton about training. I do a lot of, a lot of talks, a lot of virtual talks now, uh, really trying to train more healthcare providers to, to recognize eating disorders and to, you know, try to say the right things. We all, we all say things that, that don't quite land well with our, with our patients or our clients. And sometimes saying a thing that'll land easier and land more gently is not that hard. And we can just (laughs) switch our language. So I'm really passionate about training and and education and communication. And then my my real day job, uh, which is uh, at the the EMILY program, and and actually that's even a sort of longer story, the EMILY program and Veritas Collaborative merged uh, middle last year. And so now our parent company is called Aconto. Aconto means beside. So it's really a a commitment to walk beside people. And that's really my clinical philosophy that we need to walk beside people as they go through this journey. And so I do a lot of 
of work from a, a executive level, expanding, bringing more programs to more places, really continuing to to build access based on how do we walk with people and how do we get them care that fits in their life and saves their life and helps people and is really there for for people who need care because people need care and they get an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. You mentioned bringing awareness to other medical professionals, but as a professor, is that something that you're bringing into the classroom as well? It is. I, so I teach every semester at the University of Minnesota. I teach a management of eating disorders course. And I have a, a the intro of the class is really around what are eating disorders? How, why do people get them? All of the, the diagnostic pieces, the classification pieces, what treatment looks like. And the other two thirds of the course are really practical. Like, here's what we do in treatment. And I try to bring in people to talk about their work in terms of, you know, here I'm a dietitian in eating disorders, other than just me, uh, bringing in therapists, bringing in physicians, bringing in frontline staff that are those in those tech positions, whether they're uh, mental health techs or diet techs, people who are really with the, the patients in between the therapies because the in-between and the beside work is so important. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to educate them. Hopefully I'm, I'm doing a little bit to educate the future uh, generation of health providers. Many of the students in my class will go on to be physicians or dietitians or therapists or physical therapists or PAs. I probably managed to scare a few of the pre-med students when I tell my Good. story. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, just my experience. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my experience. But but I, I really think that it's important for healthcare providers to have a perspective. Uh, as you noted, I, I would have lots of degrees. I really liked school. Um, <laughs> and I have, a, have an MS, I have an MPH, I have a PhD. I continued to find in my education that I, I had to seek out my eating disorder training and more eating disorder access. And, and I really want to do some, some small piece to change that. So, all right, let's take a quick break to recognize our sponsor, my clear step. If you haven't heard of them, they have numberless scales and are the first HIPAA compliant solution to a blind weigh-in for clients working to recover from their eating disorders. And although I had heard of this, Several years ago, these scales became a game changer during the pandemic for so many of us, myself included. Seamless access to data for clinicians and a simple anxiety-free virtual experience for clients and families. They are offering a discount to listeners of this podcast with the code Beth Harrell at myclearstep.com. Information in the show notes. You mentioned scaring the medical students and you were kind of, even the dietetic students were like, so many of our guests are professionals and they also tried to steer as far away from eating disorders as possible. So it is one of those things I'm so grateful for the, the year 2022, where we actually have people seeking these degrees and medical doctors and providers seeking these degrees with a health at every size, intuitive eating kind of lens and weight neutral care. And so I'm curious on your, you know, here I'm thinking access to insurance, more care to more people, policies. Is there any like spoilers that you can give us on what direction we're going? Uh, we, well, we have, we have a number of things in play and certainly anybody who, who wants to get involved and encourage them to, to check out the Eating Disorders Coalition website. We're working on a bill to improve access to um, mental health awareness and, and resources in schools. 
that interestingly right now there's an avenue in schools for the school wellness policies that are really focused on on nutrition and and I, I would perhaps argue they're really focused on nutrition from a relatively narrow lens in some ways. And so we're really trying to expand that to include mental health in that, which might not at first glance be like, how does that work? But it's a wellness policy, right? So wellness, I think, and I, I think many people agree, is a, is a much more multidimensional concept and mental health and nutrition go together really well. And they actually need to work together. So we're looking at improving those some of those wellness programs with expanded mental health treatment with a particular focus on eating disorders. And so that the folks that are in schools who are interfacing with students who are so important in the lives of students will be better equipped to recognize better, better trained in terms of just an awareness and, and how what's their language and what are they hearing. So we're excited about the, the improving the, the wellness programs through that bill. We're also thinking a lot about research dollars. And so we're working really hard. Actually, the, the EDC is through a, a lot of advocate work and support has really increased in the millions of, of dollars available for eating disorder research. And as a field, we haven't had certainly the amount we need from a from a funding perspective for eating disorders research, but the, the EDC has managed to really get those numbers up a bit and continues to do so. Mm-hmm. And we're we're also really looking to support the ongoing support of the of NSEED, which is the mm-hmm. National Center for Excellence in Eating Disorders that's based in North Carolina. That center was set up out of the 21st Century Cures bill that passed in 2016. So passed in 2016, then President Obama signed it into into law. uh, And that was the first time in in the history of the U.S. that federal legislation included eating disorders. And so there were provisions in that to expand training and a number of other things. And out of that came a a training education center of excellence that is NC. And so we're really looking at expanding the services there. They're doing great work and they need need to do more and and we need to support that. So we're really excited about those pieces. So that's what we're really focused on right now. Uh, We're excited about having just gotten the CERV Act passed, which changed one of the exclusion criteria in TRICARE that said you couldn't get treatment in certain levels of care if you were over 21, if you were a military family member. Oh, yes, I... Yes, I remember reading about this. Yeah, so we, we worked really hard and, and got that passed. And so now if you are a military family member and you have an eating disorder and you're over 21, you can get some care. There's still some work to be done on, on access issues, but it's a really great first step that we're really excited about. It was a pretty, pretty big rock to push up the hill and get it to stay there. So we're yeah. super excited about that. So we'll make sure to put in the show notes too about NSEED and the coalition, but also you had mentioned, you know, getting communication and you have a a podcast. Yeah. Tell us about the podcast. Absolutely. So we have a a podcast called Piecemeal that's sponsored by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. And the, the goal of the podcast is twofold. One, we have a half of our episodes are recovery stories. And so we bring on people who are sharing their story of recovery from an eating disorder. Many of the folks we have on our our podcast have written books or have blogs or have social media presence that really are helping to get the word out, which is amazing. Part of the 
one of the, the last assignments for my class is to read a, a memoir book of somebody who experienced an eating disorder, either in themselves or a loved one, and write a paper on it. And 10 years ago, they had like 10 books to choose from. And now they have you know, 60, 70 books to choose from because people are sharing their stories in really meaningful ways. So that's a really important piece that we focus on with piecemeal is recovery stories. And we ask every guest, my, my favorite question to ask every guest is, there are people listening right now that are thinking, yeah, that recovery story is great for you, but it's never gonna work for me. And I asked the guests, you know, what would you say to them? And those are just beautiful, beautiful nuggets of wisdom because there's so much wisdom in in people who've, who've walked that path ahead of you and, and everybody's experience is different. And, you know, we always sort of say, take what works and leave the rest, just Mm. pick up those nuggets and, and use them to the, to the way that they are meaningful to you. So we focus a lot on recovery. And then the other half of the episodes are really about happenings in the field. We have advocacy focus, research focus, treatment focus, really talking about what's what's happening in the field and really trying to do our, our piece, you know, our little part to educate more folks and to do it in an accessible way. So we bring on lots of people who are doing super cool, complicated research and help them to explain it in ways that mere mortals can understand. Yes. Like, okay. And so really helping to continue the dialogue. Yeah, there was an episode I listened to on the Minnesota Semi-Starvation Study, right? So that was done at the University of Minnesota, and then there was the follow-up. And isn't it amazing? Because when I started in my supervision, that would have been in 93, and we had that data, and I was taught that through my supervision, but we were so early in the field that it was like, now there are so many YouTube videos and things that help people see it in cartoon ways and, and help our clients under, and patients understand what's happening in their body in that way. It's just amazing. So yeah, to have your guests be able to explain like what's happening with this now, 50 years later, that is amazing. I, I think I know I have it bookmarked and I have a graduate elective course too that I teach. And that is one assignment that I have actually for the certification for the certified eating disorder specialist. I added that piece of the looking at the Minnesota semi-starvation study. It's the 50 year review. Looking at the medical complications of malnutrition and comparing the psychology of that to some eating disorders, not saying that malnutrition causes eating disorders. It's really just helping people understand that in that in that moment, food is the medicine that helps heal the brain so that that the work can be done. Yeah, I have have a really fun story about that. When I was a young dietitian, I was working in a hospital and I went in to see somebody and he had a, had a relatively sort of name that's pretty popular or, or more common in the, in the Midwest. And I was working in a different state. And so I came into the room and I said, I said his name and he said, you're the first person that's pronounced that correctly. And I said, I said, oh, well, I, I'm from Minnesota and there are a lot of, you know, that kind that of name. <laughs> lots of, I think it was like a Czech name, lots of consonants. I'm like, oh yeah, we, I'm good with that. And he said, so you're from Minnesota? And I said, yeah. And and he um, was in his, in his 80s this is a while ago, maybe 70s. And he said, oh, I spent some time in Minnesota. And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, yeah, I was in a study there where they they put us in this place underneath the, the football stadium and they starved us. No way. And I was like, oh, you're in the Minnesota starvation study? And he said, 
you know about that? I'm like, oh my gosh, I am like such a fan. And so like, Isn't that amazing? It was so awesome. So I, I said, can I come see you every day you're here? Even yeah. if you don't need it for your nutrition assessment. He said, sure. So I would stop by and chat with him a little bit. It was just incredible to hear uh, about first person story of being yeah what did you learn from him I'm curious he he was fascinating he said you know a lot of the guys in the study they just got weird around food and I said yeah you know I I work in eating disorders and that study like you all really helped us understand that some of the quote-unquote weird around food that people with eating disorders have is because of biology that's so impactful. Like we understand it so much better now. And he said, oh yeah, they just got really weird around food. There were guys like (laughs) stealing food and hoarding food. And one guy was like buying stuff at the bakery and we couldn't do that. And he was like giving it away. And I'm like, yeah, I read about that. It was just (laughs) incredible. So it was, it was really, his stories were very similar to, to in the, in the study accounts and in the follow-up that he he didn't have much of a disruption in his relationship with food. Although as we talked, he said, yeah, you know, I, as you talk, I can think of some things that like, yeah, my kids did think that was kind of weird mm-hmm. years later, but I interesting, just normal. I'm like, yeah, yeah that's yeah. what happens to our brain. So it was really, it was such a gift. It was really tr- Yeah. And obviously we couldn't do, we couldn't possibly do that kind of a study right now. So we're really grateful that we had it and which set with such good medical follow-up every minute of every day, following up with not medical, not only medical, but psychological, the whole, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. It was amazing. What a contribution. Yeah. And they had no idea that they were going to help our field so much. <laughs> you had mentioned, I'm going to ask one more question. I know before Abby has her last question, but you had, and your graduate elective course two thirds of it is really like hands-on, like what, you know, feet on the road, here's what we're doing. Are there any specific resources that you send people to, to gather information, books or webinars, or I know you're their teacher, which is the best. I am really impressed. Like you were saying earlier with the content that's on YouTube from first person stories. And so I have a whole list on my my course syllabus of first person stories that I send them to just to get a good collection of people's stories. So here are people telling you about their experience with an eating disorder. How would you think about that as a healthcare provider? I use a lot of of, uh, case scenarios and have them, you know, they, they do their sort of hands-on work in the classroom with each other, since we don't have a lot of ways that, that people can, can volunteer or be involved with, with sort of actual clients in real life treatment settings. But we do a lot of role-playing mm-hmm. and we do a lot of practice, you know, the, like one of our courses, one of the, the classes I have a number of dietitians come in and we do a, a coached meal. And so we select student volunteers and we give them a tiny little scenario of like, I know you don't know what you're doing, but just like do these things, you know, cut up your food in tiny, cut up your pretend food in tiny pieces. And we ask them to do certain things. And then the, the staff coach them like they would at a, at a meal at a therapeutic meal. And so the students can see a little bit more like, what does it really mean to do that? Oh, I really do, you know, bite for bite is one of my favorite table interventions. I got my fork you pick up your fork and we'll do it together. So really that joining and helping the client do a lot of that. We do uh, an in-class yoga experience with our, one of our yoga instructors. 
we do some bit of a sort of a mock kind of group therapy session just to try it because you just, I think we just don't know, you know, what we ask clients to do until we really try it. One of the things that we do when we open any new facility in, in, in the day job at the Emily program at Veritas, that we have staff act as clients and stay in the facility. They, it's before we open, sleep over in the facility, they are mock clients and we run through a bunch of scenarios for the staff to practice mm-hmm. with experienced clinicians who are being, you know, playing clients to really learn because eating disorders are so difficult to have the fierce illness that's really lousy to have. Mm-hmm. And I think it really helps staff to, to practice some of those things before they actually jump in with, with people who are actually struggling. So as much practice as we can get, which, which can be hard to come by, I think is important. I mean, I'm even thinking about what you said at the beginning of this, this interview was you got better even with, with subpar treatment. You didn't use the word subpar, but listen to what, I mean, the, the practicing and getting staff involved and, and it's treatment has come such a long way. And I love the joining and helping the client joining Mm -hmm. bite, bite for bite, and then bringing in that yoga piece, which Abby, I know you're curious too about how programs are bringing in exercise or activity as well. Yeah. It feels like it's being talked about more and more and more about like, okay, you know what? Exercise is fine. We can do it in the correct way. We don't need to put them on like these really crazy strict lockdowns with exercise. So what does the yoga piece look like for you guys? Yeah, it's, it, I agree. It's really come a long way. We, so we do yoga in all of our programs, all of our intensive programs and our outpatient programs. So we do group yoga and we have it as a, a yoga body image, anxiety reduction intervention, because yoga is fantastic at really helping to bring down some of that anxiety. We did a a study a couple of years ago at the Emily program comparing if we did a yoga intervention before meal or after meal, which helped reduce anxiety the most. And we actually found they both were effective at reducing anxiety. Pre-meal anxiety was actually a little bit, we had more reduction there. So we try to put things like, put yoga before meals to try to reduce some of that pre-meal sort of anticipatory anxiety. But wherever you put it in the day, it's it, it can be very helpful. And it also needs to be really tailored. The yoga instructors that we hire are they're, they're trained as yoga teachers and they come in registered yoga teachers. And then we train them how to be yoga teachers with people with eating disorders and really help them to be very body sensitive, weight neutral, body neutral, and also think a lot about their, their verbiage. Uh, and, you know, yoga has become so sort of fitnessized. I know that's not a word, but sort of that, you know, in our culture that we really try to bring yoga back to its, its meditative anxiety reduction connection function for people. And that's been really, really impactful for clients. The vast majority of clients are involved in yoga, even if it's just sitting on their mat, quietly meditating, if they're not able to engage in the postures for whatever medical reason, maybe they're orthostatic or they're just not quite ready, but they can be in the room on the mat quietly because there's benefit to that. And so we, we do that with everybody and it's a really important core part of the program. We also then do some mindful walks, we do some fresh air walks. We really believe that people should you know, move their bodies in a way that works for them and in a way that is really based on what feels good and not what the eating disorder is telling them, right? So we, we work individually with each client to figure out what the right place for activity is at that time 
recognizing that that will change over time. And so we need to continue to change and stay connected. I think as, as treatment lengths of stay have gotten shorter over the past 15 years at those higher levels of care, we're not able to do as much of that modulating of activity in the highest levels of care. And that really falls more to the outpatient levels of care to, to pick up that work. So I think it's an important training piece that people feel comfortable with really understanding how to, how to manage exercise, whether it's using the C's guidelines or whether it's using another approach that really making sure it's individualized. We, we, hear stories all the time, right? And I'm sure you've heard them from, particularly from athletes or people who are very active, who who the eating disorder, you know, sort of wrapped exercise into that somehow, but at their core, they are, it's movement and activity is part of who they are. I, I love the, you know, Jesse Diggins is one of our Olympic gold medal athletes that talks a lot about how exercise and athletics really fits with eating disorder temperament and how they're, you know, athletes we know are much higher risk. But I think sometimes we, we, like you were saying, we decouple it way too quickly. Like, oh, you can't do that. Well, the, you know, it's like saying to something, you, somebody, you know, you, you, you can't do that thing. That's part of you. Why don't we help them to figure out how to do that thing? Just another thing that has gotten better because back in the day it was okay. Well, I don't care if you're an Olympic athlete, you've, you've trained your entire life. You just need to stop. Yeah. So we have come a long way, thankfully. Yep, we have. And it's almost therapeutic. You know, we want our patients to have as much therapy as they can get. So stripping of them of that is, you know, a bummer. But it's good to hear that we're kind of on the up and up with that. Everything that you have said kind of brings me back to the beginning when you said that you it puts a little bit of fear into students or other professionals when you tell talk to them about eating disorders. And not that we want people to be scared of them, but to take it seriously. And it sounds like that's where we're headed. You know, the more programs we're getting in, like with insurance and bills being passed, it is being taken more seriously. So we thank you for all of your work. It's great. And there's a lot of reward in diving into that scared part because it's just when people recover and you're part of their journey, it's just the best. It is. It is. And it's really helping a whole future generation of healthcare providers really address their, their, you know, internalized weight stigma or their perceptions of weight. And there's so much work to be done there. And it's so rewarding to see people sort of question and challenge and and think about that and then find a way to be in the world that's different. Like, wow, what would it be like if we all could have a peace with our bodies and it wasn't connected to what size our bodies were. It would be amazing. And so I'm hopeful that we're going there. Well, and I need to tell you, Jillian, sorry, Abby, I know that you're ready to do your thing. You may be aware, I'm not sure, but the Academy ASEND is working on a weight-inclusive toolkit for dietetic students, and it should roll out in about 2023. So that's, That's yeah. Yeah, that's good to know. I wasn't aware of that. Good. We need that. Okay, so taking yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? And you can take your time. I know that you probably have lots of thoughts on this one. You know, the thing that comes to mind first is that I I wish that it would have been clearer to the field and to me that a multidisciplinary treatment team needs to know more about each other's areas that I would have really loved to have gotten earlier in my career, 
an immersive education on therapeutic interventions because the field of eating disorders at that time and, and maybe still a little bit now was really like, here's the psychological interventions, here's the nutrition interventions, here's the medical interventions. You're all on a multidisciplinary team, but you do your things. And in real life with real multidisciplinary teams and real clients, I, as a dietitian, need to know a lot about the psychological treatments and the diet the therapists need to know a lot about the nutrition treatments, the medical treatments. It doesn't mean that the therapists need to be dietitians and the dietitians need to be therapists, but we need to work together and not have this, you know, early on in my career, I think there was sort of like this turf thing, like, no, you can't talk about that. It's really, we need to talk to each other and have a good plan to work with the client, but that understanding is so important. I would have loved to have learned way more about CBT and DBT earlier in my career. I got there because I figured it out that that was important, but we should tell people that sooner. So that's something I always tell my dietetic students. Like, even if you're never going to go into eating disorders as a dietitian, your main job is helping people change their behavior. Mm -hmm. So if your main job is helping people change their behavior, you need to know a lot about behavior change and emotions. And that is still a piece that we're working on getting enough information to, to young professionals, I think. So and happy. honestly, as a young professional, and I do think a lot of this, I've just ended up in great programs like with Beth and the outpatient team I work with, but it really is being talked about. Like I, I, I don't know a lot about these things yet, but I know what they are and I know that they're important. So I do feel strongly that we're getting somewhere. That's great. That is fantastic. I'm always excited when when our new staff that we hire that are just out of their internship, they're like, oh yeah, I read about that. Yay! That's Yay. great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even the word supervision is something that we're all learning about. And so that's that's what therapists have done forever. And so it's something that we're not trying to be therapists. We're really understanding how important it is to, to blend all of that. And I remember the first conferences I went to, I would go to as many of the therapy ones as I could because we're not taught that and we need to know that. Right. We're, I love that we provide medical nutrition therapy. The, med- the medical piece is over here. The therapy piece is over there. We are the link. That so, is yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Well, Thank you do. so much, Dr. Jillian Lampert, for joining us today on the Seasoned RD. We really appreciate you being here. No, oh, thanks for having me. All right. If you've made it this far, I want to thank you. And we ask that you please review, follow, and share this podcast with others so that it can get out. And stay tuned for a little more from our Clear Step sponsors, including an in-depth discussion about best practices using numberless scales. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.